HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, Today I'm going to be talking with the author, Paul Greenberg, about a recently published article that came out in the American Prospect and at the Food and Environmental Reporting Network in May. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Paul's work, he is the author of the James Beard award-winning New York Times bestseller, Four Fish, The Future of the Last Wild Food. He is also a regular contributor to the Times, uh, the National Geographic, GQ, the Times of London, Vogue, and he lectures on seafood and the environment around the country. He is currently a fellow with the Blue Ocean Institute. And in April, he became the writer in residence of New York's uh, South Street Seaport Museum. His next book, The Fish Next Door, great title, Paul, a book about how we lost and how we might regain American local seafood. That'll be published by the Penguin Press, um, I guess sometime in the next year, right? And uh, you can learn more about Paul by going to FERN, F-E-R-N, the Food and Environmental Reporting Network. Um, So, Paul, you published this great article called A River Runs Through It, this past May, and I've been chasing you ever since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> the river runs through it, and you keep on running. Yeah, exactly. You've had a busy summer. Um, yeah. By the way, thank you so much for joining me today, and uh, may I say again how much I admired that piece. I mean, it was just so thorough and uh, so beautifully researched and, and gorgeously written. It was just a pleasure. It was li- literally a page-turner, i got to tell you. <laughs> no, it was really great. I mean, I read Four Fish, which I loved also, but it was just like in terms of really getting down to some nitty-gritty history on – um, how the Mississippi River uh, is connected as a major artery in our country um, really was fascinating. So your article is about the dead zone in mm-hmm. the Gulf, and I think most people think of that as a result of the, the British Petroleum spill, the Deepwater Horizon accident a couple of years ago. But that's not actually what it's all about. So why don't you give us a timeline of what is happening in the dead zone and, and why it's happening? Yeah, well, I mean, I think any association of the dead zone with the Gulf oil spill is kind of like um, linguistic mission creep or something. Yeah. Uh, because it, the, the actual naming of the dead zone um, precedes that by several decades. Mm-hmm. Um, what the dead zone is, 
um, is a patch of uh, very oxygen-poor water that forms around the mouth of the Mississippi and in the Gulf of Mexico now on a yearly basis. Um, and it's about, it ranges in size, depends on water flow, but um, I think last year was about the size of the state of Connecticut. Good um, Lord. And it's been, been as big as New Jersey. Um, you know, it, it seems to be kind of creeping up, um, and it's, uh, you know, it's a major ecological issue. It is indeed. Um, so why don't you describe exactly what happens at a dead zone? So it's, 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 it's a big area where there's no oxygen, and, and what's the impact on the environment of that? How much it, it affects wildlife, it affects seafood, what, what's going on? Well, so first of all, what, what is it formed by? Um, uh, oxygen is, you know, obviously key to marine life as it mm-hmm. is to all life. Um, and what happens is uh, in the springtime when you get a big rush of water down the Mississippi, uh, it brings a lot of nutrients um, from agricultural lands upstream. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus that go into the water. Um, primarily in the Gulf, it's nitrogen that's the problem. What that does is it's a fertilizer. So right. it fertilizes the blooming of algae. The algae die, and when they die, uh, they're consumed by bacteria, which consumes oxygen. Oh. And so what you end up with is a very oxygen-poor area that you know, basically things can't live in. Uh-huh. Um, so you know, if you do that over the size of the state of Connecticut and some of what should be some of the most fertile grounds in, uh, fishing grounds in the United States, you can imagine that that's a serious um, impact on our food system. Absolutely, and a serious impact on the livelihood of all those people who rely on marine life to make a living down in the Gulf. Yep. Um, so there were, now you're talking about nutrients, and it, it, to me it's almost counterintuitive to call them nutrients because, you know, actually they're poisons. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and nitrogen, of course, became a popular fertilizer in the wake of World War II. I don't, I don't, you did, I don't think you mentioned this, but it's, they discovered that all those bomb-making capacities largely composed of nitrogen... Um, could be used for fertilizer. So, That's right. So, it's, you know, it's basically it's called the Haber-Bosch process, uh-huh. and it's um, a chemical means of doing what things like legumes do in nature, and that is to fix gaseous nitrogen into a form that can then be absorbed uh, by plants. Right. And, uh, I think I read in a recent article that, um, you know, if it weren't for the Haber-Bosch process, I think something like a third to a half of us, or maybe even three-quarters of us, wouldn't be able to exist. Um, it's, it's the fixing of nitrogen was a key thing that allowed humans uh, to expand their population because we had that much more food. Right. Um, but, you know, the, in nature, you can always have too much of a good thing. Um, <laughs> nitrogen is great uh, if it stays on the farm, uh, but because of the way we, you know, work our fields, uh, particularly in the modern era, uh, that nitrogen isn't staying on the farm, and that's the whole problem. So when you, in the beginning of the article, you're at the headwaters of the Mississippi River way up north. It's mm-hmm. Minnesota, right? And so you describe, um, you know, how the runoff from those fields is going into little rivers and tributaries, and then they're all feeding into the Mississippi. Right. Um, and but there have been in the past um, programs that were meant to sort of remediate that, like the Conservation Reserve Program and the Wetlands Reserve. That's right. Um, what happened? Like, why are they no longer really effective? Is it because of the volume, or um, the main thing is corn? Um, you know, mm-hmm. Michael Pollan long ago told us, you know. Keep your eye on corn. Um, the price of corn has just really surged over the last 10 years. Right. Um, and what it's causing is basically what these reserve programs do is that they, they pay farmers uh, not to farm in marginal land, streamside area, that kind of thing, to keep it in wetlands. Um, but at a certain pr- point, um, corn became more valuable than the government could reimburse you for not farming it. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, once upon a time, it was kind of a boon for farmers because they could say, sure. wow, 
I don't want to work this really difficult land. The government doesn't want me to work this difficult land. I'm getting some money not to work it. But now corn, uh, because we have a huge export market in corn, largely going to Asia, uh, you know, now it's worth it to farm those lands. And once you start farming them, you know, then you're going to get all this runoff, and that's what causes the nitrogen and the phosphorus to get into the water in the first place. Um, I'm going to just uh, throw something out there that I hadn't thought about until just now. But um, with the advent of our GMO corn, don't they have to? Use, don't they use? Isn't the whole point of that is to use less fertilizer? Are you finding that it's the same amount of fertilizer, even though corn is largely a GMO crop now? Uh, you know, conceivably that's probably true, but you also are growing much more corn. So even right. if you might be using less fertilizer per plant, mm-hmm. um, the overall volume of corn has increased to such a degree that you know you're you're just getting more and more uh, fertilizer use overall. Incredible. Well, one of the things you described is up in Minnesota they have a, a practice called tiling, which was yes. at the time drained a lot of those wetlands for cultivation. But apparently, one of the farmers that you found, I think it was Mr. Hicks, um, has found a way of of using tiling to actually protect his his waterways. Can you talk well, a little bit about that whole sort of practice and, and yeah, I mean, why you know, more the, people aren't doing it? I have to say, well, first of all, just to take a step back and look at tiling okay. itself, um, next time, you know, any of you listening fly over the Midwest and you see, you know, that huge expanse of, you know, patchwork fields that we're used to seeing, right. imagine that beneath that is the world's biggest plumbing system, <laughs> that beneath all of those fields is miles and miles and miles of pipe. Um, that is used wow. to drain water off of the land. They do that because, you know, we often think, wow, water, you need water for growing crops. We hear about droughts all the time. Sure. Um, but too much water, like anything, can be a bad thing. And particularly in the winter uh, or the early spring, if you have a lot of uh, moisture still in the soil, corn won't, and corn and soy won't germinate properly. So that water gets drained off so that you can have drier land early on and you can get a longer growing season. Right. However... You know, if you have this sort of open pipe system that just flushes out all the fertilizer and so forth directly into the watershed, that's a problem. Um, But as you mentioned, you know, I was uh, spent some time with a guy named Brian, excuse me, Brian Hicks, really interesting farmer, who lives right near where actually Little House on the Prairie took place. Oh, I want to go there. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I love those books. Actually, look like Little House on the Prairie. It's kind of (laughs) you know big GMO corn operation on the prairie at this point. But Brian actually is a very conscientious guy. And he's been working with the University of Minnesota to come up with a system where it's, it's pretty simple, basically. It's, it's, instead of having these drainage pipes open all the time, uh, there is a way to, to close down the piping at a certain point and keep the water in the land at certain key moments and to let it go out at you know, key times rather than all the time. Um, right. What this does is it raises the water table uh, to a point where a lot of that water is recoverable in the hot drought-like months. And so Brian ends up actually doing better than a lot of his neighbors because he's holding more water in the soil. How oh, interesting. So, I mean, theoretically, they're going to start seeing that he's more he's able to be more productive, and perhaps they will continue, they will adopt some of his practices, right? Con- con- conceivably. I mean, part of the problem is that so much of American agriculture uh, is just kind of on autopilot. Um, yeah. You know, it's not that many people are required to work a farm anymore. And um, if you're going to get involved in the business of putting switching on your tiling, um, that's more labor or that's more infrastructure. That's a greater investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and, you know, people don't necessarily like to do that. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, hopefully we'll see some sort of 
uh, cost-benefit yeah, know, analysis absolutely. on it. Yes, it, well, that would be nice. Um, <laughs> it would be nice if the USDA did some of the things that it's supposed to be <laughs> that it's yeah. paid for. I mean, to the government's credit, I mean, they are interested in this. They're tracking it. They know it's a problem. Uh, but, you know, the other larger problem are just the economics. I mean, mm-hmm. the really larger problem is corn itself. And um, no matter how much tiling that we do or tiling control we do, um, we're still growing this crop that is very, very fertilizer-intensive. And in addition, um, the biggest problem with corn is it leaves exposed a lot of soil. Anytime right. you see soil exposed without any kind of cover crop on it, that means that water is going to be able to sheet off into a watershed and carry the fertilizer with it. Along with a lot of the topsoil. Along with a lot of the topsoil. Which is a huge problem itself. Exactly. And, you know, as I think I talked about in the article, and as, you know, students of, you know, who go a little deeper when they look at agronomy know, you know, once upon a time the entire Midwest was either forested or was covered with, you know, huge accumulations of sod, of, of mm-hmm. prairie, natural prairie grasses, and those grasses had root structures that went 5, 10 feet deep. Um, when you have that kind of root structure in place all the time, that holds the soil in place and that holds the nutrients in place. Right, absolutely. Well, to just go on for a couple more minutes about the history, and then we'll talk about the politics of this, mm-hmm. um, you have a very interesting history of the floodplain of the Mississippi, which, of course, is not just exclusively in the mouth of the Mississippi or the Delta, yep. but really all the way down the river. Yep. And it's been altered tremendously, and, and you uh, talked about Robert Eads and the, the uh, work of the Army Corps of Engineers and trying to straighten out the river. Can you give us like a little more background on that? Because I thought that was a really interesting part of the article. Sure. Well, <laughs> you know, the whole watershed of the Mississippi has been changed remarkably in the last 150 years. Mm-hmm. The first part was that tiling that we spoke of where we're actually draining the wetlands around the Mississippi. But further down the river, um, you know, the Mississippi is what they call a perched river, and meaning that a lot of it actually is above sea level. So, you know, it's one of the only rivers where you have to actually look up at to see it if you're standing on certain portions of the floodplain. Uh Um, Different ideas have come out over the years of trying to figure out what to do about the Mississippi to try and control the floodplain. I mean, of course, the whole thing in the first place is that farmers actually wanted access to the floodplain. I mean, every year before the Mississippi was controlled, the river would spread out um, several dozen miles on either side of the river. Wow, and I had no idea it was that much. Several huge, dozen huge. miles. Amazing. Yeah, and, and I think I was reading somewhere that Mississippi, there's one theory of the word Mississippi, um, uh, you know, some say it means the father of waters, uh, but another uh, Indian dialect that was put out there is that it means the river that is everywhere. Uh-huh. And when you think about it, if you look at a huge floodplain during flood season, it is the river that is everywhere. It, was, it, it would flood so much that you couldn't even really perceive it as a river. It was just water everywhere. Oh. Um, of course, if you're going to try and colonize something like that, uh, it's not very hospitable. And also, <laughs> if you could drain the floodplain, which is what a lot of people figured out, beneath that floodplain is the most fertile land. Mm-hmm. And so what we've done over the last 100 years is to constrict the Mississippi in these levees and this dike system mm-hmm. that raises the river above sea level, drains the floodplain, and leaves it available for the planting of crops. Um, right. All these different engineers worked on that project. In some cases, they actually, um, this area in the lower Mississippi called the Greenville Bends, they actually lopped off all the bends in the river um, and straightened it um, and decreased the overall mileage of the river by 150 miles. That's amazing. I mean, really, just from a public works project. <laughs> 
aspect. Yes. That's just like an astonishing statistic. Yes. I mean, lopping 150 miles of, of river flow is, it's sort of hard to even take it in. Yep. Well, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers, um, when they set their mind to something, in the past anyway, uh, they, <laughs> they accomplished quite a bit. Well, it didn't work with Katrina, with <laughs> with New Orleans so well. but <laughs> No, no. Well, I'm just saying, you know, to some degree, you know, the modern, the 21st century of the United States is governed by scratching our heads and thinking back to what the Army Corps of Engineers did in the 20th and the 19th century. We're, we're having to live with the legacy of these very, very big projects. Right, and decisions that were made 75 years ago that people didn't had no way of predicting what the future would be, obviously. Of course, of course. You know, and also, you know, America was a wilder country. There was a lot of river. There was a lot of forest. There was a lot of prairie. Um, when you have a lot of stuff all around you, you feel as if you're just kind of digging out a little furrow for yourselves. And at yeah. a certain point, when the furrow becomes the country, that's when you have to look around and think about, geez, what have I done to this place? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a short break, Paul, about 30 seconds for a sponsor drop. Uh, folks, stay with us. We'll be back right away with Paul Greenberg, uh, author of Four Fish, and the most recently of the article, um, A River Runs Through It. Come back in a couple of seconds. You're listening to Dead Stars on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Stay tuned. The following is an actor reading an actual customer email from Heritage Foods USA. My family and I enjoyed the Heritage Turkey. It was far superior to the regular mass-produced turkeys in terms of flavor and texture. Absolutely delicious and worth the difference in price. We will never go back to the regular turkeys. It made our holidays more enjoyable. Thank you, Heritage Foods USA. Heritage Foods USA hopes you had a great holiday season. For more specials on pork, beef, and other meats, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. And we are back with What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and on the phone with me today is Paul Greenberg, the author of Four Fish, and most recently an article uh, that ran in the American Prospect in May, as well as the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, uh, called A River Runs Through It. And we're talking about the dead zone in the Gulf and how the Mississippi River has been um, altered and uh, how our agricultural um, you know, practices are creating these unexpected and unfortunate results. So um, you go on in your um, in your article to talk about a conversation you had with Secretary Vilsack, um, mm-hmm. and he suggested that uh, voluntary participation in reclamation projects such as the one that we talked about in the earlier segment with Mr. Hicks, and then there are other farmers that you spoke with who have other more uh, ingenious methods of, of kind of trying to fix the problems. Um, but, you know, his, his attitude is that it should be voluntary, it shouldn't be mandated. And um, that just reminds me of the FDA offering voluntary guidelines for controlling antibiotic use in the livestock sector. So um, what, do you, what was the rest of that conversation and why do you think he's so, uh, you know, so sweet about not making people do what they need to do? 
Well, you have to first of all think about where Vilsack is from and Mr. what Korn. he represents. Yes. You know, he's from the Midwest. He's, I mean, I think Iowa. He's still a pre- possible <laughs> presidential candidate. And, I, and farmers have long memories. Um, yeah. So, you know, you don't have to win too many votes to win Iowa. So certainly mm-hmm. he's not going to go and shove a bunch of federal regulation down a bunch of Iowa farmers' throats. So that's one thing. Um, but the other thing, the elephant in the room in all of this is the Chesapeake Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chesapeake Bay, just like the Gulf of Mexico, has a dead zone problem, has a, you know, a nutrient loading pro- problem. Um, but recently, they actually have mandated what's called um, a TMDL, a total maximum daily load of huh. nutrients like nitrogen into the Chesapeake Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, that's the law. Like, there is now official, you know, limits on the amount of nutrients that can go in, into the bay. Right. And it's caused a lot of uh, consternation, a lot of fights, um, very, very contentious issue. And um, I think, you know, there are organizations out there who would like to see a TMDL for the Gulf of Mexico, for the Mississippi Delta, sure. um, which is, you know, orders of magnitude. I was just going to say, how are you ever going to regulate that when you're talking about the entire length of the Mississippi River, essentially? Tricky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, tricky. it's hard to regulate um, and, the Chesapeake Bay. I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's very, very, very tricky. Um, you know, that said, some things have been regulated. You know, mm-hmm. we have managed to get DDT out of our food system, more or less. Um, right. We have managed to do it in certain cases, but, you know, in the case of fertilizer versus, say, DDT, you know, it's an essential thing, some would argue, for the growing of food. Um, so how you get that out, how you reduce that is, is um, a hard thing to, it's a hard sell. It's a very, very, it's a hard problem. Well, absolutely. It's, it's, it's totally parallel to the antibiotic issue, because what you're saying is, you know, you you need to do this. We want you to do this. We don't want to shove the guidelines down your throat. But at the same time, you're telling guys that they have to, I mean, just like the farmers don't want to lose the margin they get from the extra growth that antibiotics give in yep. a prophylactic situation. Yep. You know, the the tiling that we just talked about, you know, that, that costs money. These guys have to actually invest their own money. The government isn't offering financial aid in the farm bill yep. to remediate the water system. That's so it's, it's, like you said, it's an incredibly hard sell. And um, I have to say, I think that, um, you know, Vilsack has been really weak on this stuff. I mean, I don't see that he's really done a whole lot in his now six years in office as the, you know, head of that, of the USDA. I mean, it's just, I think he reflects, the Department of Agriculture, I mean, it's oh, just yeah. not happening. I mean, I think he reflects um, a kind of Obama-esque um, attitude towards things in that, you know, how with you know how Obama about the energy policy, mm. you know, all, all of the above. Remember that statement where he yes. said, you know, let's, let's have local drilling, let's have foreign drilling, you know, let's have it all. Mm-hmm. And Vilsack, in my conversation with him, was very much in that vein of like, we, you know, we need to use everything to try and solve this problem. Um, and, you know, if you do everything, then nobody gets particularly blamed. Um, and I think that is indicative of you know, what's going on at USDA, and it's also indicative of what's going on with the Obama administration. I think that's a good extrapolation. Um, (laughs) You went on to say in the article, and I'll quote this, what the uh, department, meaning the Agriculture Department, seems concerned with is a complicated dance with other regulatory bodies, particularly the Environmental Protection Agency, to avoid telling the politically important constituency of swing state Midwestern farmers what to do. I'm wondering if you ran across any documents from the EPA that bear on this issue, and, and who are the other agencies that have a say in these kind of land management practices? Is it really just up to USDA and and the EPA? Well, I mean, there's a patchwork of 
administrators up and down the Mississippi, the Fish and Wildlife um, Agency, um, you know, different different players, different you know municipalities, state-run things. That's why one of these things. That's why these things are so complicated because mm-hmm. there are so many overlapping issues. But you know, the situation is is that the EPA is in charge of the overall water quality of the Mississippi, and so you know they technically should be you know keeping an eye on USDA and keeping an eye on the nutrient load that's going into the water. But again, if EPA gets into the position of having to, you know, go after USDA, nobody wants that to right. happen. So it's, you know... It, no, it's I do just... want that to happen, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think that sounds good. And and I'm, I'm surprised at how scared they are, if you know what I mean, like of having sort of intramural conflict between the two departments. Yeah. I mean, and, and in fact, you know, a couple of um, nonprofit organizations have gone you know, so far as to propose suing the EPA because Mm -hmm. EPA is not doing the enforcement that they should be doing. But then that begs the question of, like, how do you pay for that? I mean, we can't pay for the enforcement of, again, to go back to the antibiotic analogy, we can't pay to enforce that. Um, So how are we going to pay to enforce any kind of water quality issues? I mean, I had a a guest from Food and Water Watch on recently who told me that we don't even know how many uh, CAFOs there are in this country. Right. they, They don't even have the basic information on... How many farms are doing what and where? You know, it's like, it's, it's well, pretty sketchy. It is a little sketchy, but um, I think you have to start to think about the economic costs that we're incurring because of the nutrient loading that's going on in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. The Gulf of Mexico is the biggest fishery in the continental United States wow. by, by far. I mean, the only other bigger fishery we have in the United States is Alaska. You know, uh-huh. Alaska, that's its own thing. But as far as continental fisheries are concerned, the Gulf is it. Um, fishermen have traditionally, you know, they tend to be, uh, you know, with the other extractive industries and with big ag and sort of thinking like, no, more, no, you know, let's, keep government regulation away from this, right. you know, let's keep Uncle Sam out. Um, and this is, to some degree, an argument I'm making in my next book, which is that fishing, potentially, if it's done right, has this potential to be a sort of economic guard dog of the ocean. Uh-huh. Um, if people are getting real value from the ocean, uh, and they are finding that that value is being decreased by a, a, an opposing industry, uh, then they will fight for their money. Right. Um, so I think that is a kind of a key circle that has to be closed. So mm-hmm. uh, I would hope that we could see a more assertive fishing sector uh, trying to put screws on big ag and understand that this is, you know, trying to get good nutrition into the mouths of Americans. And if they can't get it through corn and wheat, we certainly can get it through fish. Well, what we do get through corn and wheat is giant exports and yep. lots of money that uh, you know gets paid into this country's coffers by by outside you know uh, by outside buyers and that have nothing to do with getting food on the table of Americans. And right. and I think what you're saying is like we're setting up a situation, or we have already set up a situation in which uh, commercial fishing is pitted against these massive corporations. And uh, right. as far as I know, fishing has never been. Um, shall we say a cohe- fishermen do not represent a cohesive voice? Not yet. And there's not yet. so but, I mean, much look conflict. Look at what we've done to ourselves. I mean, 91% of all the seafood Americans consume is from abroad. Yes, exactly. So, you know, you have to think, wow, geez, 
um, if the Louisiana marsh is falling apart and we've lost 50% of the biggest marsh in the continental United, I mean, in, the, in North America, right. as a result of big ag, as a result of the oil industry, uh, if, we, if, if we've lost 50% of the marsh and salt marsh is responsible for 75% of the commercial seafood production in this country, wow. what does that say about the seafood we've lost? Yeah, but it says volumes about the fact that the seafood industry is is light years behind big ag in terms of uh, scoring big contracts and making themselves um, as powerful a lobbying agency as, uh, say, the National Corn Growers Association. That's, I mean, that's right. I mean, I mean, I often say that you know, there was somebody who did a linguistic analysis of Europe, and they said that they found that um, the Basque um, were mm-hmm. you know genetically and um, linguistically so different from the rest of Europe that they must have been the remnant hunter-gatherers of Europe that were then conquered by the seed and sowers of the Indo-European invasions of thousands Mm -hmm. and thousands of years ago. I often think that the people who have the fishing gene, and I'm one of them, uh, tend to be a little retrograde <laughs> in their ability to, mm-hmm. you know, make social organization. They're, they're fishing yeah. for a reason in the sense that they don't really deal very well with the larger world, and um, they suffer as a result of it. They do. But if, you know, but if seafood and fishing is going to survive in the next century, they're going to have to be a much more cohesive force and, and try to band together. I mean, the thing that I get frustrated with with fishing is that, you know, they spend so much time fighting environmentalists about, you know, regulation yes. and not killing sea turtles and so forth, when really the people who are really taking their bread and butter are the people that are, you know, ruining salt marshes, the people who are doing offshore oil exploration. Right. That's what's really dealing them the bigger blow. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. I, I, let's, let's, let's schedule another time to talk about that. <laughs> because I've done, you know, I come from a fishing community. I'm from Rhode Island, and I've oh, well. seen what happened um, to my local, you know, economy in Rhode Island where, you know, people are going out of business daily. I mean, we lost so much of the fishing industry, and it had yep. such an incredibly uh, serious impact on quality of life there. Yep. And um, even now, like, the shellfish growers are banding together, but even now, there's like you got you talk to you know one fisherman after another, and they each have diametrically opposing views of how the fisheries should be managed, whether it should be the catch shares or whether it yep. should be, you know, the derby day or what. You know, it's like crazy. These guys, yep. they're really it's a real cutthroat kind of thing. I mean, and there is no no two guys are going to say the same thing. It's very interesting to me that they can't quite. Um, see what you're saying, which is the big picture, which is where 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 is your real battle here? Yep, it's yep. not with cat shares and the New England, you know, Fisheries Council. You know? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, an Alaska fisherman once said to me, you know, why do we have abundant fisheries in Alaska? Well, we have unimpeded rivers, we have big salt marshes, um, we have very right. little industry. You know, you do, you you can't, if you have that, you're going to have abundant mm-hmm, wild fisheries. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I loved your point because we unfortunately have to wrap this up. It's already one yep. thirty. This is the fastest half hour in radio today. <laughs> um, but I do. Lo- I loved your point about how the land ag is killing the seafood business. So, do we have like any sense of? Um, you mentioned that we'd lost fifty percent of the Gulf fisheries. Uh, no, we've lost fifty percent of the salt marsh of, of the salt marsh. I see, and that's and what an impact that has on our food producing capacities. Yes. And, and who in Congress? Um, we'll just wrap up with this question: Who in Congress is is working with? Uh, fisheries management to um, try to stand up to large agricultural concerns, or is that still in the future? I would say it's probably a future project. I mean, I think, you know, NOAA and mm-hmm. National Marine Fisheries Service within NOAA, you know, they, they try to make this point about salt marshes, and I'm certainly going to make it in this forthcoming book I have. Right. Um, 
you have to, um, this is a, just a key, key point, but I think, you know, when the average American hears the word salt marsh conservation, you know, you can literally see the glaze forming I was just going to say, the eyes. eyes roll back into the head. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's key. I mean, yeah. it's really, really key. And, um, you know, big ag is destroying our salt marshes. Um, oil is destroying our salt marshes. Yeah. Re- real estate development is destroying our salt marshes, and so that's... You know, that's really what we got to hold on to in the next century. Well, that's something to think about when you go to the polls and like listen to what people are saying because yes. you want them to start talking about standing up to big ag. So, Paul Greenberg, um, promote yourself now. You're, you're fourth. Co- <laughs> <laughs> You've been a great guest. You deserve to promote. Oh well, thank you. Well, you, actually, you when's know, your I new book coming out? My book, uh, the new book, has changed its title since we last. Uh, since oh. you probably read the PR. Yes, but it's, it's actually going to be called um, American Catch: The Fight for Our Local Seafood. Excellent. And that and that comes out in June. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'll continue to write. And, and you'll research. be coming back for that. Yes, I hope I would so. love to promote and, that for uh, you. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's a, and you a have, year ahead. Do you have any speaking engagements coming up? I'm doing a Southern Swing through the Southeast. Oh, I'm going to see you there. I'm going to that Chef's Collaborative thing. Oh, yeah. Actually. So yeah. I'll be at Charleston at Chef's Collaborative. Then I'm doing a tour, a couple of talks at Duke and UNC mm-hmm. and William & Mary. And we're actually going to do, Andrea Ruzig is a good friend of mine, is a great chef. Oh, yeah, a very chef. nice woman, yep. Um, we're going to do a, a sort of a shrimp off where we're going to like talk about shrimp and cook a lot of shrimp and, and talk about the ins and outs of shrimp aquaculture. So that's, that's probably the next biggest thing on my agenda right Fantastic. now. Fantastic. And you have a website people can visit for more yeah, information? Yeah, they can go to, four, well, my you know, earlier book, Four Fish, you, they can go to fourfish.org. Okay, great. Paul, thank you so much for taking a half hour out of your day today, or rather 32 minutes to be precise. <laughs> really appreciate it. No, this has been a great conversation. I'd love to have you back anytime you want. Thanks very so, much, Katie. Take care. Thank you. And thanks to my sponsor and my engineer, and I'll see you next week with another very interesting program. I promise. <laughs> take care, folks. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.